Welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast, where we help supplement and functional food brands create better products. Today's host is Todd Runstead, Senior Editor. Hi, this is Todd Runstead at Natural Products Insider. I'm here with Michael McGuffin, President of the American Herbal Products Association. Um, Michael, great days to be in the herbal products business, isn't it? Very good time to be in the botanicals business, yeah. absolutely. So what strikes me about the botanical business is um, A, continued growth year after year. We always see that happening. Uh, and and then also what I find really interesting is the supplement industry always is concerned about how are we going to attract the new generation of shoppers. And so it, it seems as if um, the new generation of shoppers is indeed finding supplements, but they're coming at their sort of values and their life and their choices and all this stuff, and they're coming at it and they're looking at how do I live a life full of vitality? So they're looking for nutrient-dense whole foods. This is the smoothie generation. And so when they actually go toward bottles of supplements on the shelves, it seems as if they're really going toward botanicals. They're going toward herbs. I, I, they must see these as like, oh, these are unadulterated plants. I can get behind that. Um, now, I know you're not a market tracker, but does that make sense to you? It's, it's fascinating, and I think it does make sense. I think if you look at the, uh, the, the kind of conditions that we always talk about, these millennials, the things that they're most interested, they're really interested in information, and they have information at their fingertips. And I, I like your perception that it's easy for them to say, if you start with food, what's the next thing that I can use that's a lot like food, that's a lot like just a natural substance, it's a ground up herb, it's not the stuff taken out of uh, an orange peel called vitamin C, it's not the stuff taken out of another, you know, it's, it's not letter vitamins or minerals. I think it makes sense that that kind of natural trend would extend to the most natural range of the uh, dietary supplement, which is botanicals. Right. And, botanicals. and there's lots of botanicals at play that are good for just your everyday constitution, you sure. know, like your moringas, your macas. Turmeric. Yeah, right. all, all the above. So that's that's really interesting. So, um, you know, what, what American Herbal Products Association does is you really help companies, entrepreneurs, a lot of small people who are making five-gallon jugs of tinctures right. in their cellar, kind of things like that. You just want them to, to produce it effectively, responsibly, you know, offer solid, safe products to the Correct. world, right? We focus our efforts in three primary areas. One is advocacy. We're working with the Food and Drug Administration on a regular basis and with the Federal Trade Commission and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and USDA National Organic Program. U.S. We, Fish and Wildlife? They are the Just agency. for wildcrafting or stuff like that? They're, they're the agency that has oversight on uh, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Mm -hmm. There are two North American plants, Golden Seal and American Ginseng, that are listed in CITES, and there are dozens uh -huh. of plants from India, China, and other parts of the world that come into the U.S. that are CITES listed. So we have a really good relationship with them. We've produced guidance for our members how to import and export a CITES listed plant. It's wow. an obscure 
detail in, yeah. in regulation, yeah. but we're expert in this, and, and we provide that kind of service. It's not just guys making five gallons. It's yeah. not just some hip, hippie herbalists making five gallons. We have members that And are, God bless them. We, we love those people. Yeah. And they really don't have uh, a trade association home anywhere near as... that offers the same sense of community as APA. It's really unique that we do include them. But we have multinational companies in our membership also. Yeah. So, so what's the... How do you talk to those two like vastly different it's markets, like, like a hippie in North Carolina and a multinational based in you know Germany? You know, it's funny, Todd, but it's. <laughs> I would say it has a lot to do with um, res- respecting the history of the emergence of the supplement industry, and then also, and I'll get back to that, but also the personality of APA is very inclusive and always has been. So I think it. It's accurate, if a little funny, to say that the dietary supplement industry was founded by hippies and Mormons. Yes. It's just true. I think that's it exactly right. It was those right. hippies on the West Coast and those hippies up in New York and Long Island and uh, Air One and New England, and then the people in Salt Lake City, the people in Utah. They came at the medicine from different ideologies, but at, the, at, at a moment in time realized that we needed to work together. So that's been kind of a basis of the community way before Deshay. I mean, we were already working with each other in the 70s and 80s to keep these herbal products in front of people, to keep any regulatory restriction shut down. I mean, there, there were some pretty early uh, topics that brought us together. You know, it's, there was one company that was trying to import a Chinese herbal blend from China and FDA wouldn't allow it because they said those are all food additives. And the company, they were, they were called Fimali. Their position was, no, these aren't food additives, they're food ingredients. And FDA said, oh, but they don't have a history of use in the United States. And Fimali said, there's nothing that says it has to be in the United States. Anywhere in the world, they won. It was a significant judicial victory. Mm. APA's board was in communication. Fimali was a member in communication with their lawyer. We've got minutes of some of those early meetings in the early 80s where this was the whole topic. And, and really sort of indicative of just the global supply chain. I mean, we get herbs from all over the world. Right. You know? Right. That's true. It was true then also. You know, we've been getting herbs from Europe and from India and from China for decades. And Well, as people emigrated to the U.S., they brought them with them. Yeah. You know, there's... Uh, a place up in Oregon, I think, at one of the old railroad camps, where there's still the remnants of a Chinese herbalist's shop. And what was he using? He was using Chinese herbs, so it's not really a new thing. We're continuing this yeah. tradition, not reinventing So l- it. let me ask you an interesting question. Uh, um, there are lots of different traditions all around the world. You've got traditional Chinese medicine, you've got Ayurveda, you've got uh, you know, sham- shamanic from South America, you might have Native American from the U.S., you know, you've got this, you know, the the gypsies from, e, you know, Eastern Europe. Can you, can you identify, like, w- would there be common herbs to, to more than one of those traditions? Absolutely. But then would they use them differently? What I've seen is they tend to use them the same. Mm. So people continents apart will find the same plant or one closely related, and then when they get together hundreds of years later, when we start having you know, international communication, what we find is that the um, native people of Southern California were using um, mugwort to 
for exactly the same thing that it was being used in Chinese medicine for hundreds of years. Hmm. Remarkable. Yeah, right. And what is, to me, that's an indication that our great-great-great-grandparents, our ancestors, they were pretty smart people. They were very observant. They used the things that made them feel better. They did not use the things that made them feel worse, or they stopped using them. You know, they, they learned not to put their hand in the fire twice for those that hurt them, and they learned to go back to the ones that helped them. And that rich, rich, rich tradition um, and the cultural treasures that still are available to us through the records that have been kept all over the world, as you said. And, and so humanity somehow has managed to stay alive for 10,000 years minus the last 50 since pharmaceuticals came in. How is that possible? Well, you know, we're resilient people. We, we, and I'll repeat, we pay attention. We pay attention to what works. We pay attention to what makes us feel better. And then, of course, we figured out the, um, how to move water in and out of our houses much more cleanly than we used to. Bonus. And how to do the same thing in a surgery room than we used to. You know, we did an awful right. lot of sanitation that made huge contributions to public health and longevity. Right. But in the meantime, we're still using the same herbs that our grandparents were using. Yeah, so, so traditional Chinese medicine, traditional that connotes some time deep in the past, modern American medicine. There's a big crossover. Yeah, yeah. And, and so isn't that interesting? And, and so it does, just because we have some new tools, some new pharmaceuticals or surgeries or what have you, um, there's still a value in that traditional herbal use, you right. know, just because people have observed and tested and learned right. and they've seen, ah, this can help for that. Right. At the same time, what we're using isn't old-fashioned because we have uh, developed new tools, new technologies that help in um, processing. The extraction techniques that are available to us today are very conducive to ensuring batch-to-batch -batch consistency, to limiting waste. There's a whole developing um, concept of what's called green extraction, which is use non-toxic solvents and exhaust the material. When you, By the time you compost it, it should essentially be cellulose. You've taken everything out of it. And that kind of uh, modern technological approach while still respecting the traditions and the, the knowledge that was gained before is been a really significant move forward. And some of the, you know, some of our member companies, Indina and Sabinsa and uh, Euromed, that they're just making beautifully high quality, consistent batch-to-batch -batch herbal products by bringing in these uh, modern technologies and really thinking about how do we best serve consumers ultimately by giving them a high quality and, and product? And part of it, I guess, is just like efficiencies. And so to that end, so much of the supplements industry is a waste stream product sort of world, you know, where they used to just take cranberries for the juice. And then someone figured out, oh my God, there are these things called proanthocyanidins that are inside. And what if we do that? You know, and then they discover it's for urinary tract infections. So, is there any is there anything new under the sun? Is is, is the botanical industry just moving as, in terms of efficiencies and extraction and bioavailability, or are there new things that we have yet to discover before we burn down the rainforest? I think we're we're we continue to be curious, so we will continue to see new things. I mean, I said turmeric earlier. Ten years ago, nobody was talking about turmeric, and it's been used. You know, I cook with it. I. Yeah. Fingers are all yellow for days, <laughs> uh, a few times a month. But its emergence as a 
health-promoting supplement is kind of new. Um, and then, of course, you can't have any conversation today uh, about botanicals without talking about cannabis and the huge emergence of hemp. I, I find myself saying, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, there was a pretty good burst of interest in echinacea, but not like this. And then there was St. John's wort, and that was a big flash, but not like this. And then there was kava, and that was really important, but not like this. We've never seen it. I've been in the herbal business since 1974. Never before have I seen anything like this. It doesn't seem to have an immediate, you know, a short-term end in sight. I know that there are some kind of concerns that it'll all fall apart shortly, but I don't hear that very often. Mostly what I see, and we saw some of these presentations here at the CRN conference where they're projecting really significant growth. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done with regulators. USDA published its interim final rule a couple of weeks ago, and we're organizing people to comment on that. FDA was here, um, but didn't really give us a, a, a guide as to where they're going forward, but they need to go forward. They, their primary mission to protect public health. Uh, we know they take it seriously. We know they're working hard to try to find out how they're going to address that with this crazy important. Right. I mean, that, that's the thing that, that strikes me about hemp CBD is, as far as safety goes, no one has ever died smoking marijuana, and I know that there's no there's, there's a difference between hemp CBD and marijuana, right, right. but to the average consumer, there isn't so much of a difference, right. which is why there's so much uptake of this new ingredient because everybody's been smoking weed for so long. Right. I hear radio commercials in Colorado. You know CBD. It's like marijuana, only it doesn't get you high and it still has health effects. And it's like, yeah. That's what the average person, so you don't need a structure function claim to sell this. No, stuff. you don't, you don't. We, we just did a quick glance, Merle Zimmerman at APA's office, he's our chief information analyst, and today he sent me some data. He did a review of all of FDA's adverse event reports for hemp or CBD and dietary supplements since January 2014. So that's nearly six years now. There were 55 adverse event reports. Most of them were upset stomach, uh, failed drug test, um, uh, sleepiness, not, there were two deaths associated with uh, CBD, one of them also included an adulterated kratom product and the other one was also with something else. So the reasonable expectation of safety, that's the threshold we have to meet. It appears as if, in spite of the fact that we don't have any new dietary ingredient notifications, there's only one company talking about its grass self-affirmation. This is not a dangerous plant. This, there's not, I know that there are some concerns expressed mostly by FDA that if you take very large doses of pure CBD, there's a liver toxicity. FDA announced its public advisory against use by pregnant and nursing women recently. That's fine. We, we, those protected populations, let's always be protective of those populations. But I certainly haven't seen anything to suggest that we've, we've got some uh, creeping and hidden uh, danger and then we should probably get back into that other room because Marilyn Barrett and uh, Rick Kingston are going to give us some information about what they've learned about Let, the safety of this ingredient let's, right now. Let's take care of our pharmacognosists as yep. they take care of us. Michael, good talking to you. Good Thanks talking for being to you here. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for listening to a Healthy Insider Podcast, now available on Apple Podcasts or through Google Play. Subscribe now to never miss an episode.